Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and thank you very much for the many kind reviews we've been receiving from all sources. And now, Chapter 22, The Flight in the Heather. The Moor. Some seven hours' incessant, hard traveling brought us early in the morning to the end of a range of mountains. In front of us there lay a piece of low, broken desert land, which we must now cross. The sun was not long up, and shone straight in our eyes. A little thin mist went up from the face of the moor than like a smoke, so that, as Alan said, there might have been twenty squadron of dragoons there, and we none the wiser. We sat down, therefore, in a howl of the hillside till the mist should have risen, and made ourselves a dish of dramic, and held a council of war. "'David,' said Alan, "'this is the kittle bit. Shall we lie here till it comes night, or shall we risk it?' "'and stave on ahead.' "'Well,' said I, "'I am tired indeed, "'but I could walk as far again, "'if that was all.' "'Aye, but it is nay,' said Alan. "'Nor yet the half. "'This is how we stand. "'Appen's fair death to us. "'To the south it's all Campbell's, "'and no to be thought of. "'To the north? "'Well, there's no muckle to be gained by going north, "'neither for you, that wants to get the Queensferry, "'nor yet for me.' "'that wants to get to France. "'Well, then, we'll have to strike east.' "'East be it,' says I, quite cheerily. "'But I was thinking, into myself, "'Oh, man, if you'd only take one point of the compass "'and let me take any other, "'it would be the best for both of us.' "'Well, then, east, you see. "'We had the muirs,' said Alan. "'Once there, David, it's mere pitch and toss. "'Out on yon bald, naked flat place, "'where can a body turn to?' Let the redcoats come over a hill. They can spy you miles away, and the sorrows in their horses' heels. They would soon ride you down. It's no good place, David, and I'm free to say it's worse by daylight than by dark. Alan, says I, hear my way of it. Appen's death for us. We have none too much money, nor yet meal. The longer they seek, the nearer they may guess where we are. It's all a risk, and I give my word to go ahead until we drop. Alan was delighted. "'There are wiles,' said he, "'when you're altogether too canny and whiggish "'to be company for a gentleman like me. "'But there come other wiles "'when you show yourself a metal spark, "'and it's then, David, "'that I love you like a brother.' "'The mist rose and died away, "'and showed us that country lying as waste as the sea, "'only the moorfowl and the peewees crying upon it, "'and far over to the east a herd of deer, "'moving like dots.' Much of it was red with heather, much of the rest broken up with bogs and hags and peaty pools. Some had been burnt black in a heath fire, and in another place there was quite a forest of dead firs, standing like skeletons. A wearier-looking desert man never saw, but at least it was clear of troops, which was our point. We went down accordingly into the waste, and began to make our toilsome and devious travel toward the eastern verge. There were the tops of mountains all round, you are to remember, from whence we might be spied at any moment, so it behooved us to keep in the hollow parts of the moor, and when these turned aside from our direction, to move upon its naked face with infinite care. Sometimes, for half an hour together, we must crawl from one heather bush to another, as hunters do when they're hard upon the deer. It was a clear day again, with a blazing sun, the water in the brandy bottle was soon gone, and altogether, if I had guessed what it would be to crawl half the time upon my belly, 
"'and to walk much of the rest stooping nearly to the knees. "'I should certainly have held back from such a killing enterprise.' "'Toiling and resting and toiling again, we wore away the morning, "'and about noon lay down in a thick bush of heather to sleep. "'Alan took the first watch, "'and it seemed to me I had scarce closed my eyes "'before I was shaken up to take the second. "'We had no clock to go by, "'and Alan stuck a sprig of heath in the ground to serve instead, "'so as soon as the shadow of the bush should fall so far to the east, "'I might know to rouse him. "'But I was by this time so weary "'that I could have slept twelve hours at a stretch.' I had the taste of sleep in my throat. My joints slept even when my mind was waking. The hot smell of the heather and the drone of the wild bees were like possets to me, and every now and again I would give a jump and find I'd been dozing. The last time I woke I seemed to come back from farther away, and thought the sun had taken a great start in the heavens. I looked at the spring of heath, and at that I could have cried aloud, for I saw I had betrayed my trust. My head was nearly turned with fear and shame, and at what I saw, when I looked out around me on the moor, my heart was like dying in my body. For sure enough, a body of horse soldiers had come down during my sleep, and were drawing near to us from the southeast, spread out in the shape of a fan, and riding the horses to and fro in the deep parts of the heather. When I waked Alan, he glanced first at the soldiers, then at the mark in the position of the sun, and knitted his brows with a sudden, quick look, both ugly and anxious. "'which was all the reproach I had of him. "'What are we to do now?' I asked. "'We'll have to play at being hares,' said he. "'Do you see yon mountain?' "'Pointing to one on the northeastern sky. "'Aye,' said I. "'Well, then,' says he, "'let us strike for that. "'Its name is Ben Alder. "'It's a wild desert mountain full of hills and hollows, "'and if we can win to it before the morn, "'we may do yet.' "'But, Alan,' "'cried I. "'That will take us across the very coming of the soldiers.' "'I can that fine,' said he. "'But if we're driven back on Appen, "'we're two dead men. "'So now, David, be brisk.' "'With that he began to run forward on his hands and knees "'with an incredible quickness, "'as though it were his natural way of going. "'All the time, too, he kept winding in and out "'the lower parts of the moorland "'where we were the best concealed. "'Some of these had been burned, "'or at least scathed with fire.' and there rose in our faces, which were close to the ground, a blinding, choking dust as fine as smoke. The water was long out, and this posture of running on the hands and knees brings an overmastering weakness and weariness, so that the joints ached and the wrists fainted under your weight. Now and then, and it, now and then indeed, where there was a big bush of heather, we lay a while, and panted, and putting aside the leaves, looked back at the dragoons. They had not spied us, for they held straight on, a half-troop, I think, covering about two miles of ground, and beating it mighty thoroughly as they went. I had awakened just in time, a little later, and we must have fled in front of them, instead of escaping on one side. Even as it was, the least misfortune might betray us, and now and again, when a grouse rose out the heather with a clap of wings, we lay as still as the dead, and were afraid to breathe. The aching and faintness of my body, the laboring of my heart, the soreness of my hands, and the smarting of my throat and eyes in the continual smoke of dust and ashes, had soon grown to be so unbearable that I would gladly have given up. Nothing but the fear of Alan lent me through a false kind of courage to continue. As for himself, and you are to bear in mind that he was cumbered with a greatcoat, he had first turned crimson, but as time went on the redness began to be mingled with, with patches of white. His breath cried and whistled as it came, and his voice, 
when he whispered his observations in my ear during our halts, sounded like nothing human. Yet he seemed in no way dashed in spirits, nor did he at all abate in his activity, so that I was driven to marvel at the man's endurance. At length, in the first gloaming of the night, we heard a trumpet sound, and looking back from among the heather, saw the troop beginning to collect. A little after, they had built a fire and camped for the night, about the middle of the waste. At this I begged and besought that we might lie down and sleep. "'There should be no sleep this night,' said Alan. "'From now on, these weary dragoons of yours will keep the crown of the Merland, and none will get out of Appen but winged fowls. We got through in the nick of time, and shall we put in jeopardy what we've gained? Nay, when the day comes, I shall find you and me in a fast place on Ben Alder. "'Alan,' I said, "'it's not the want of will. It's the strength that I want. If I could, I would. But I'm as sure as I'm alive. I cannot.' "'Very well, then,' said Alan. "'I'll carry ye.' "'I looked to see if you were jesting. "'But no, the little man was in dead earnest, "'and the sight of so much resolution shamed me. "'Lead away,' said I. "'I'll follow.' "'He gave me one look as much to say, "'Well done, David,' and off he said again, "'at his top speed. "'It grew cooler and even a little darker, "'but not much, but the coming of the night. "'The sky was cloudless.' It was still early in July, and pretty far north, in the darkest part of that night. You would have needed pretty good eyes to read, but for all that, I've often seen it darker in a winter midday. Heavy dew fell and drenched the moor like rain, and this refreshed me for a while. When we stopped to breathe, and I had time to see all about me, the clearness and sweetness of the night, the shapes of the hills like things asleep, and the fire dwindling away behind us like a bright spot in the midst of the moor, Anger would come upon me in a clap that I must still drag myself in agony and eat the dust like a worm. But what I've read in books, I think few that have held a pen were ever really wearied, or they would write of it more strongly. I had no care of my life, neither past nor future, and I scarce remembered there was such a lad as David Balfour. I did not think of myself, but just of each fresh step which I was sure would be my last, with despair, and of Alan, who was the cause of it. "'with hatred. "'Alan was in the right trade as a soldier. "'This is the officer's part "'to make men continue to do things. "'They know not wherefore, "'and when, if the choice was offered, "'they would lie down where they were and be killed. "'And I dare say I would have made "'a good enough private, "'for in these last hours it never occurred to me "'that I had any choice but to obey "'as long as I was able, and die obeying. "'Day began to come in, "'after years, I thought.' and by that time we were past the greatest danger, and could walk upon our feet like men, instead of crawling like brutes. But dear heart have mercy! What a pair we must have made, going double like old grandfathers, stumbling like babes, and as white as dead folk. Never a word passed between us. Each set his mouth and kept his eyes in front of him, and lifted up his foot and set it down again, like people lifting weights at a country play. All the while, with the moor-fowl crying peep in the heather, and the light coming slowly clearer in the east. I say Alan did as I did, not that ever I looked at him, for I had enough ado to keep my feet, but because it is plain he must have been as stupid with weariness as myself, and looked as little where we were going, or we should never have walked into an ambush like blind men. It fell in this way. We were going down a heathery bray, Alan leading, 
"'and I following a pace or two behind, "'like a fiddler and his wife. "'When upon a sudden the heather gave a rustle, three or four ragged men leaped out, "'and the next moment we were lying on our backs, "'each with a dirk at his throat. "'I don't think I cared. "'The pain of this rough handling "'was quite swallowed up by the pains "'of which I was already full, "'and I was too glad to have stopped walking "'to mind about a dirk. "'I lay looking up in the face of the man that helped me, "'and I mind his face was black with the sun, "'and his eyes very light, "'but I was not afraid of him. "'I heard Alan and another whispering in the Gaelic, "'and what they said was all one to me. "'Then the dirks were put up, "'our weapons were taken away, "'and we were set face to face, "'sitting in the heather. "'They are Clooney's men,' said Alan. "'We couldn't have fallen better. "'We we'll just abide here with these, "'which are his out-sentries, "'till they can get word to the chief of our arrival. "'Now Clooney Macpherson, "'the chief of the clan Vorich, "'had been one of the leaders of this great rebellion six years before. "'There was a price on his life, "'and I had supposed him long ago in France "'with the rest of the heads of that desperate party. "'Even tired as I was, "'the surprise of what I heard half wakened me. "'What?' I cried. "'Is Clooney still here?' "'Aye, is he so?' said Alan. "'Still in his own country, "'and kept by his own clan. "'King George can do no more. "'I think I would have asked farther.' "'but Alan gave me the put-off. "'I'm rather wearied,' he said, "'and I would like fine to get asleep. "'And without more words, "'he rolled on his face in the deep heather bush "'and seemed to sleep at once. "'There was no such thing possible for me. "'You have heard grasshoppers "'whirring in the grass in the summertime. "'Well, I had no sooner closed my eyes "'than my body, and above all my head, "'belly, and wrists, "'seemed to be filled with whirring grasshoppers. "'And I must open my eyes again at once.' "'and tumble and toss, and sit up and lie down, "'and look at the sky which dazzled me, "'or at Clooney's wild and dirty sentries, "'peering out over the top of the bray, "'and chattering to each other in Gaelic. "'That was all the rest I had, "'until the messenger returned, "'when, as it appeared that Clooney would be glad to receive us, "'we must get once more upon our feet and set forward. "'Alan now was awake and in excellent good spirits, "'much refreshed by his sleep, very hungry.' "'and looking pleasantly forward to a dram and a dish of hot collops, "'of which, it seems, the messenger had brought him word. "'For my part, it made me sick to hear of eating. "'I had been dead heavy before, "'and now I felt a kind of dreadful lightness "'which would not suffer me to walk. "'I drifted like a gossamer. "'The ground seemed to me a cloud, "'the hills a featherweight, "'the air to have a current like a running burn, "'which carried me to and fro. "'With all that, a sort of horror of despair sat on my mind.' "'so that I could have wept at my own helplessness. "'I saw Alan knitting his brows at me, "'and supposed it was in anger, "'and that gave me a pang of light-headed fear, "'like what a child may have. "'I remember, too, that I was smiling, "'and could not stop smiling, hard as I tried, "'for I thought it was out of place at such a time. "'But my good companion had nothing in his mind but kindness, "'and the next moment two of the gillies had me by the arms, "'and I began to be carried forward with great swiftness, "'or so it appeared to me.' although I dare say it was slowly enough in truth, through a labyrinth of dreary glens and hollows and into the heart of that dismal mountain of Ben Alder. We'll return with Chapter 23 right after these sponsor messages. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. 
Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. And now chapter 23 of Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Clooney's Cage. We came at last to the foot of an exceeding steep wood, which scrambled up a craggy hillside and was crowned by a naked precipice. It's here, said one of the guides, and we struck up hill. The trees clung upon the slope like sailors upon the shrouds of a ship, and their trunks were like the rounds of a ladder by which we mounted. Quiet at the top, and just before the rocky face of the cliff sprang above the foliage, we found that strange house which was known in the country as Clooney's Cage. The trunks of several trees had been waddled across, the intervals strengthened with stakes, and the ground behind this barricade leveled up with earth to make the floor. A tree which grew out from the hillside was the living center beam of the roof. The walls were of wattle and covered with moss. The whole house had something of an egg shape, and it half hung, half stood in that steep, hillside thicket, like a wasp nest in a green hawthorn. Within, it was large enough to shelter five or six persons with, with some comfort. A projection of the cliff had been cunningly employed to be the fireplace, and the smoke rising against the face of the rock, and being not dissimilar in color, readily escaped notice from below. This was but one of Clooney's hiding places. He had caves, besides, and underground chambers in several parts of his country, and following the reports of his scouts, he moved from one to another as the soldiers drew near or moved away. By this manner of living, and thanks to the affection of his clan, he had not only stayed all this time in safety, while so many others had fled or been taken and slain, but stayed four or five years longer, and only went to France at last by the express command of his master. There he soon died, and it is strange to reflect that he may have regretted his cage upon Ben Alder. When we came to the door he was seated by his rock chimney, "'watching a gilly about some cookery. "'He was very plainly dressed, "'with a knitted nightcap drawn over his ears, "'and smoked a foul cutty-pipe. "'For all that he had the manners of a king, "'and it was quite a sight to see him rise out of his place to welcome us. "'Well, Mr. Stewart, come away, sir,' said he, "'and bring in your friend that as yet I didn't ken the name of.' "'And how is yourself, Clooney?' said Alan. "'I hope you do brawly, sir.' "'and I'm proud to see ye, "'and to present ye to my friend, "'the Laird of Shaw's, Mr. David Balfour.' "'Alan never referred to my estate "'without a touch of a sneer "'when we were alone, "'though strangers. "'He rang the words out like a herald. "'Step in by, the both of ye, gentlemen,' "'says Clooney. "'I make you welcome to my house, "'which is a queer, rude place for certain, "'but one where I've entertained a royal personage. "'Mr. Stewart, "'you doubtless can the personage I have in my eye.' "'We'll take a dram per luck, "'and as soon as this handless man of mine "'has the cullops ready, "'we'll dine and take a hand at the carts "'as a gentleman should.' "'My life's a bit drag," said he, "'pouring out the brandy. "'I see little company, "'and sit and twirl my thumbs, 
"'and mind upon a great day that's gone by, "'and weary for another great day "'that we all hope can be upon the road. "'And so here's a toast to ye. "'The restoration!' "'Thereupon we all touched glasses and drank. "'I am sure I wished no ill to King George, "'as if he had been there himself in proper person. "'It's like he would have done as I did. "'No sooner had I taken out the drain "'than I felt hugely better "'and could look on and listen, "'still a little mistily, perhaps, "'but no longer with the same groundless horror "'and distress of mind. "'It was certainly a strange place, "'and we had a strange host. "'In his long hiding, "'Clooney had grown to have "'all manner of precise habits, "'like those of an old maid. "'He had a particular place "'where no one else must sit. "'The cage was arranged "'in a particular way, "'which none must disturb. "'Cookery was one of his chief fancies, "'and even while he was greeting us in, "'he kept an eye on the collops. "'It appears... He sometimes visited or received visits from his wife and one or two of his nearest friends, under the cover of night, but for the more part lived quite alone, and communicated only with his sentinels and the gillies that waited on him in the cage. The first thing in the morning, one of them, who was a barber, came and shaved him, and gave him the news of the country, of which he was immoderately greedy. There was no end to his questions. He put them as earnestly as a child, and at some of the answers, laughed out of all bounds of reason and would break out again laughing at the mere memory, hours after the barber was gone. To be sure, there might have been a purpose in his questions, for though he was thus sequestered, and like the other landed gentlemen of Scotland, stripped by the late Act of Parliament of Legal Powers, he still exercised a patriarchal justice in his clan. Disputes were brought to him in his hiding hole to be decided, and the men of his country, who would have snapped their fingers at the court of session, lay aside revenge and paid down money at the bare word of this forfeited and hunted outlaw. When he was angered, which was often enough, he gave his commands and breathed threats of punishment like any king, and his gillies trembled and crouched away from him like children before a hasty father. With each of them, as he entered, he ceremoniously shook hands, both parties touching their bonnets at the same time in military manner. Altogether, I had a fair chance to see some of the inner workings of a Highland clan, and this with a proscribed fugitive chief, his country conquered, the troops riding upon all sides in quest of him, sometimes within a mile of where he lay, and when the least of the ragged fellows whom he raided and threatened could have made a fortune by betraying him. On that first day, as soon as the collops were ready, Clooney gave them with his own hand a squeeze of a lemon, for he was well supplied with luxuries, and bade us draw into our meal. They, said he, meaning the collops, are such as I gave his royal highness in this very house, "'baiting the lemon juice, "'for at that time we were glad to get the meat "'and never fast for condiments. "'There were more dragoons than lemons in my country "'in the year 46. "'I do not know if the collops were truly very good, "'but my heart rose against the sight of them, "'and I could eat but little. "'All the while Clooney entertained us "'with stories of Prince Charlie's stay in the cage, "'giving us the very words of the speakers, "'and rising from his place to show us where they stood. "'By these I gathered the prince was a gracious, "'spirited boy,' like the son of a race of polite kings, but not so wise as Solomon. I gathered, too, that while he was in the cage, he was often drunk, so the fault that has since, by all accounts, made such a wreck of him, had even then begun to show itself. We were no sooner done eating than Clooney brought out an old, thumbed, greasy pack of cards, such as you may find in a mean inn, and his eyes brightened in his face as he proposed that we should fall to playing. Now this is one of the things I've been brought up to to eschew like disgrace, it being held by my father neither the part of a Christian 
nor yet of a gentleman to set his own livelihood and fish for that of others on the cast of painted pasteboard. To be sure, I might have pleaded my fatigue, which was excuse enough, but I thought it behooved me that I should bear a testimony. I must have got very red in the face, but I spoke steadily, and told them I had no call to be a judge of others, but for my own part it was a matter in which I had no clearness. Clooney stopped mingling the cards. "'What in the devil's name is this?' says he. "'What kind of a whiggish canting talk is this for the house of Clooney MacPherson?' "'I'll put my hand in the fire for Mr. Balfour,' says Alan. "'He's an honest and a metal gentleman, and I would have you bear in mind who says it. "'I bear a king's name,' says he, cocking his hat, "'and I and any that I call friend are company for the best. "'But the gentleman is tired and should sleep. "'If he has no mind for the cards, it will never hinder you and me.' "'and I'm fit and willing, sir, to play you any game that you can name.' "'Sir,' says Clooney, "'in this poor house of mine, "'I would have you to ken that any gentleman may follow his pleasure. "'If your friend would like to stand on his head, he's welcome. "'And if either he or you or any other man "'is not precisely satisfied, "'I'll be proud to step outside with him. "'I had no will that these two friends "'should cut out their throats for my sake. "'Sir,' said I, "'I am very wearied, as Alan says, "'and what's more,' "'as you are a man that likely has sons of your own, "'I may tell you that it was a promise to my father.' "'Say no more,' said Clooney, "'and pointed me to a bed of heather in the corner of the cage. "'For all that he was displeased enough, "'looked at me askance, and grumbled when he looked, "'and indeed it must be owned that both my scruples "'and the words in which I declared them "'smacked somewhat of the Cumnanter, "'and were little in their place among wild Highland Jacobites.' What with the brandy and the venison, a strange heaviness had come over me, and I had scarce lain down upon the bed before I fell into a kind of a trance, in which I continued almost the whole time of our stay in the cage. Sometimes I was brought awake and understood what passed. Sometimes I only heard voices, or men snoring, like the voice of a silly river, and the plaids upon the wall dwindled down and swelled out again, like firelight shadows on the roof. I must sometimes have spoken or cried out, for I remember I was now and then amazed at being answered, yet I was conscious of no particular nightmare, only of a general, black, abiding horror, a horror of the place I was in, and the bed I lay in, and the plaids on the wall, and the voices, and the fire, and myself. The barber gilly, who was a doctor too, was called in to prescribe for me, but as he spoke in the Gaelic, I understood not a word of his opinion, and was too sick to even ask for a translation. I knew well enough I was ill, "'and that was all I cared about. "'I paid little heed while I lay in this poor pass, "'but Alan and Clooney were most of the time at the cards, "'and I am clear that Alan must have begun by winning, "'for I remember sitting up and seeing him hard at it, "'and a great glittering pile of as much as sixty or a hundred guineas on the table. "'It looked strange enough to see all this wealth in a nest upon the cliffside, "'waddled about growing trees. "'And even then I thought it seemed deep water for Alan to be riding.' "'who had no better battle-horse than a green purse "'and a matter of five pounds. "'The luck, it seems, changed on the second day. "'About noon I was wakened as usual for dinner, "'and as usual refused to eat, "'and was given a dram with some bitter infusion "'which the barber had prescribed. "'The sun was shining in at the open door of the cage, "'and this dazzled and offended me. "'Clooney sat at the table, biting the pack of cards. "'Alan had stooped over the bed "'and had his face close to my eyes, "'to which... "'troubled as they were with the fever, "'it seemed of the most shocking bigness. "'He asked me for a loan of my money. "'What for?' said I. "'Oh, just for a loan,' said he. "'But why?' I repeated. 
I don't see.' "'Hut, David,' said Ellen. "'You would not grudge me alone.' "'I would, though, if I had had my senses. "'But all I thought of then was to get his face away, "'and I handed him my money. "'On the morning of the third day, "'when we had been forty-eight hours in the cage, "'I awoke with a great relief of spirits, "'very weak and weary indeed, "'but seeing things of the right size, "'and with their honest, everyday appearance. "'I had a mind to eat, moreover, "'rose from bed of my own movement, "'and as soon as we had breakfasted, "'stepped to the entry of the cage "'and sat down outside in the top of the wood. "'It was a grey day with a cool, mild air, "'and I sat in a dream all morning, "'only disturbed by the passing by "'of Clooney's scouts and servants "'coming with provisions and reports. "'For as the coast was at that time clear, "'you might almost say he held court openly. "'When I returned, "'he and Alan had laid the cards aside "'and were questioning a gilly, "'and the chief turned about "'and spoke to me in the Gaelic. "'I have no Gaelic, sir,' said I. "'Now, since the card question, "'everything I said or did "'had the power of annoying Clooney. "'Your name has more sense than yourself, then,' "'said he angrily, "'for it's good Gaelic. "'But the point is this. "'My scout report's all clear in the South. "'And the question is, "'have you the strength to go?' "'I saw cards on the table, "'but no gold, "'only a heap of little written papers, "'and these all on Clooney's side.' Alan, besides, had an odd look, like a man not very well content, and I began to have a strong misgiving. "'I do not know if I am as well as I should be,' said I, looking at Alan, "'but the little money we have is a long way to carry us.' Alan took his underlip into his mouth and looked upon the ground. "'David,' says he at last, "'I've lost it. There's the naked truth.' "'My money, too?' said I. "'Your money, too,' says Alan, with a groan. "'You should not have given it to me. "'I'm daft when I get to the cards.' "'Hoot toot,' said Clooney. "'It's all nonsense. "'Of course you'll have your money back again, "'and the double of it, if you'll make so free with me. "'It would be a singular thing for me to keep it. "'It's not to be supposed that I would be any hindrance "'to gentlemen in your situation,' "'and begin to pull gold out of his pocket with a mighty red face. "'Alan said nothing.' "'only looked on the ground. "'Will you step to the door with me, sir?' said I. "'Clooney said he'd be very glad, and followed me readily enough, "'but he looked flustered and put out. "'And now, sir,' says I, "'I must first acknowledge your generosity.' "'Nonsensical nonsense!' cries Clooney. "'Where's the generosity? "'This is just a most unfortunate affair. "'But what would you have me do?' "'boxed up in this beast-keep of a cage of mine, "'but just set my friends to the cards "'when I can get them? "'And if they lose, of course, it's not to be supposed.' "'And here he came to a pause. "'Yes,' said I. "'If they lose, you give them back their money, "'and if they win, they carry away yours in their pouches. "'I have said before that I grant your generosity, "'but to me, sir, "'it's a very painful thing to be placed in this position.' There was a little silence in which Clooney seemed always as if he was about to speak, but said nothing. All the time he grew redder and redder in the face. "'I am a young man,' said I, "'and I ask your advice. Advise me as you would your son. My friend fairly lost his money, after having fairly gained a far greater sum of yours. Can I accept it back again? Would that be the right part for me to play? Whatever I do, you can see for yourself,' "'It must be hard upon a man of any pride.' "'It's rather hard on me, too, Mr. Balfour,' says Clooney, 
"'and ye give me very much the look of a man "'that has entrapped poor people to their hurt. "'I wouldn't have my friends come to any house of mine "'to accept affronts, no,' he cried, "'with a sudden heat of anger, "'nor yet to give them.' "'And so you see, sir,' said I, "'there is something to be said upon my side, "'and this gambling is a very poor employ for gentle folks. "'But I'm still waiting your opinion.' "'I'm sure if ever Clooney hated any man, it was David Balfour. "'He looked me all over with a warlike eye, "'and I saw the challenge at his lips. "'But either my youth disarmed him, or perhaps his own sense of justice. "'Certainly it was a mortifying matter for all concerned, "'and not the least Clooney, the more credit to him that he took it as he did. "'Mr. Balfour,' said he, "'I think you are too nice and covenanting. "'But for all that, you have the spirit of a very pretty gentleman.' "'Upon my honest word, ye may take this money. "'It's what I would tell my son. "'And here's my hand, along with it.'" Thanks for joining us for these two chapters, chapters 22 and 23, of Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. It's a great story. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.